Today on the Matt Wall Show, Democrats double down on their abortion messaging heading into the midterms. This week, they've offered pro-abortion propaganda that ranges from unintentionally hilarious to incredibly horrific. Also, Elon Musk begins to call the herd over at Twitter. Early voting is already causing confusion and problems. A country star gets in trouble for publicly associating with Ron DeSantis. And the media worries that the World Series might be racist because there aren't enough U.S.-born black players. An oddly specific complaint. We'll talk about all of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. When cyber criminals comb through the dark web uh, for stolen items, they're looking for your PII, your personal identifiable information. PII includes your uh, full name, your social security number, your driver's license, bank account numbers, passport number, phone number, email address. This is all the things they're looking for, and oftentimes they're able to find. That's why it's so important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. Your personal information gets exposed so often that it's dangerously easy for cyber criminals to steal your identity. Protecting your identity can be easy, though, with LifeLock by Norton. LifeLock detects and alerts you to potential identity threats that you may not spot on your own, like loans taken out in your name or crimes committed by thieves pretending to be you. If you do become a victim of identity threat, uh, theft that is, a dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it for you, and they will work with you. Um, nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. After the red wave washes over us on Tuesday, the Democrats will, of course, respond by refusing to look inward or engage in anything like introspection. They will lament the death of democracy. They'll accuse Republicans of cheating, even after spending years claiming that it's an attack on democracy to accuse your opponent of cheating. They will blame the American people. They'll blame uh, racism, homophobia, transphobia, arachnophobia, all the phobias. They'll say and do many things. But one thing they will not do is spend any time trying to actually figure out why they lost and lost so badly. If they did, they would see that one of their most catastrophic mistakes was to make abortion a central part of their campaign message. They assumed that voters would be motivated you know, by the overturning of Roe. They assumed Americans would flock to the polls to defend the right to kill babies. They assumed that most Americans are as avidly supportive of baby murder as they are, and they assumed wrongly. But this is the horse they rode in on, and they're going to take it all the way to the finish line regardless. In the final days before the election, every Democratic apparatus is leaning into the pro-abortion message in ways that range from unintentionally hilarious to unbelievably heinous. So we'll, we'll kind of ease into this, and we'll start with the hilarious first. So over on NBC, the medical drama New Amsterdam, which uh, is a show that apparently exists, aired an episode this week revolving around... Um, abortion, and the overturning of Roe. The Daily Wire reports, quote, the recent episode, Maybe Tomorrow, explores a world with restricted access to abortion. Showrunners spoke with TV Line about their motivations and aims for the episode, which had leftist fans applauding and conservatives swearing that they're done with the series forever. The episode begins with a montage showing hospital staff realizing Roe v. Wade had been overturned, which was presented as a catastrophic event. Each character then dealt with the aftermath in their own way. Dr. Lauren Bloom, uh, played by Janet Montgomery, admits that she had an abortion in the past, which was not a big deal. 
quote unquote. One doctor punched a protester outside the hospital and New Amsterdam staffers panic because he's gay and they're concerned about the court's outlawing same-sex marriage. At various points in the episode, Max inquires about opening an abortion clinic on a military base and setting up a floating clinic to circumvent new laws. Quote, these kinds of issues, both in our country and the healthcare industry, is why I wrote the show to begin with. It's why I created New Amsterdam, according to David Schulner, the showrunner, uh, which she said to TV Line in an interview, as depressing and horrifying as it was, the show was made to tackle these issues. And so we all put in everything we had into this episode. Yes, they put everything they had into it. Unfortunately, that, uh, that means that they didn't put any you know, intelligence or subtlety or wit into it because they didn't have any uh, to begin with, which explains the opening scene as mentioned in the Daily Wire article. Okay, it's the, the montage opening scene. And it is, it is honestly one of the greatest scenes of unintentional comedy to ever air on television. I mean, the whole thing plays like a parody. And when I first saw this, I had to, I had to watch it all the way through, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm waiting for the punchline, and it never came. Because this is meant to be taken seriously. And you really just have to see it to appreciate it. So let's watch a little bit of this together. Okay, so he's reading the news about Roe v. Wade being overturned. He's, he's tearful. And he's looking at his daughter. That young child will never be able to kill a child. And he's, that, that, he's distraught by that, by that possibility. And he drops the phone. He can't even look at the phone. He drops it in disgust. And then we've got the people standing around the street and they're just, they're dumbfounded because Roe v. Wade was overturned. Shell-shocked. And she drops, she drops the cup. They do the dramatic cup drop. Which has been a cliche since like 1995, by the way. And look at all these people walking down the street, every single one of them. They can't believe it. They can't believe they can't kill babies anymore. Even though this is New York and they can still kill babies. So... Maybe someone could tell them that, make them feel better. Oh, and there's another father. He's in tears. He's in. He's a father is in tears because his, uh, he's thinking about uh, you know that his daughter will never be able to kill his grandchildren, and that actually makes him cry. So the whole scene went. It went on for like two minutes. Um, there was a time. When something so heavy-handed and on-the-nose and corny and cliche-ridden, again, we, we, you actually get the scene where the person is holding a cup of coffee and dramatically drops it. There was a time when something like that, that could only exist in the Christian movie space, okay? Uh, though coming from the opposite ideological perspective. But modern Hollywood has now adopted the same approach as the Christian film industry, except without the benefit of at least being right about the issues. If you want to know why Democrats are about to lose, it's because they think that that what you just watched is an effective piece of propaganda. When it comes to politics, there is nothing worse than being unintentionally funny. In a political setting, you never want to be, that's the worst thing you can be is unintentionally funny. Look at Joe Biden. He's unintentionally funny all the time uh, because then you've made yourself into a joke. But that's the Democratic specialty at this point. And yet it was not all fun and games. Also this week, NPR uh, did its own bit of pro-abortion propagandizing 
while taking a decidedly different approach. Again, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, NPR's Michigan Morning Edition aired an, ab- aired an abortion on air Thursday morning, complete with the sound of the 11-week-old preborn child being vacuumed from the womb. Reporter Katie Wells narrated the account of the unnamed woman undergoing the abortion at Northland Family Planning in the Detroit area. Quote, abortion clinics are almost always closed to the press, but a group of Michigan clinics generously allowed us to embed with them because abortion rights are on the ballot in Michigan this November. But for the doctors, staff, and patients we met there, none of this was about politics, Wells wrote in October during her investigation. For the patients who allowed us into their lives and their procedures, it's about whether they can escape an abusive partner or support the kids they already have, or finish school, or keep their jobs. We're going to take you inside the clinic, she added. For nine days ahead of the midterm elections, Wells shared stories from her investigation into in a lengthy article. One account spoke of a woman named Melissa from Ohio who came to Michigan for an abortion. Ohio recently enacted a ban on most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Quote, I would be struggling for a very long time, Melissa said. I would have to drop out of school, and I would have to find a different job because I would need more daycare. She opted to go through with an abortion at 14 weeks of pregnancy. Okay, so they played the actual audio of an abortion. And I have that clip. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Um, because I'm, you know, you have to decide for yourself if you want to actually listen to it. But instead we'll play you the the lead up, okay, right, right up to the moment when they turn the abortion machine on. Uh, so I'll play that much at least. And here it is. Listen patient is not one of the patients you heard before. She's asked that we not use her name. She's from Michigan. She already has one kid. She's having her abortion at about 11 weeks. Nearly all abortions in Michigan are before 13 weeks. And like many patients at Northland, she said I could record her procedure. We're going to hear some of that now. So I am just going to get you set up on the table and we're going to do that sedation medicine. Okay. I'm going to pull this out under your legs. Most patients are partially awake during the procedures. They get IV medication for pain and anxiety. The lights are dimmed. There's soothing music. It actually feels a lot like a childbirth. The medical gown, your bare legs and stirrups, and a person next to you saying, you can do this. Please breathe. Just keep breathing. That's Brandy. She's one of the staffers. Her job is to monitor vital signs, but it is also to hold the patient's hand and talk her through this. Whether it's a birth or an abortion, it is often women guiding other women. You're going to hear this machine turn on now. Okay, it makes a loud noise. Okay. Well, that machine is the vacuum that is used to suck the baby out of the womb, ripping him apart in the process. Um, the sound of the vacuum is eerie for the obvious reasons that it's being used to murder a child. And also because without that sound, the whole thing would sound very similar to a childbirth. The abortionist urging her on, you know, encouraging her, saying, keep breathing, as she says throughout the, quote, procedure. At the end, um, if you listen all the way to the end, you can hear people in the room laughing and smiling and saying, you did great. This is the point that NPR wants us to take away. It's why they recorded and aired it in the first place. They're saying, see, you know, abortion isn't scary. It's just like childbirth except that it's the opposite of childbirth. It is like a satanic parody of childbirth. To treat the murder of a child as though it is the birth of a child, that doesn't make the murder better or more palatable. If anything, it makes it worse. If it's possible for it to be worse than it already is, then that would be the effect here. 
But this should really tell you what you need to know. The NBC and NPR propaganda given to us in the same week uh, also gives us a look at the, at, at the two ends of the abortion propaganda spectrum. There's abortion as portrayed in this fictionalized universe on NBC, and then there's abortion as it is in reality, which NPR let us listen to. The former, the, the fictionalized version, is inevitably ridiculous. And the latter, no matter what they do or how they try to dress it up, it is inevitably horrific and gut-wrenching, which is why they rarely do this. They rarely give you a look inside when it's actually happening. And I can tell you that I, I guarantee NPR is already regretting their decision here. You know, we're supposed to hear the sounds of a woman having her baby killed and think, hey, that's not so bad. But instead, we're viscerally repulsed and horrified. Because there is no appealing or credible way to present this. Abortion is what it is in the end. And what it is, is the direct and intentional murder of innocent human life. Nothing will ever make that okay. And the Democrats, I think, will pay the price, as they should, politically, for pinning their electoral hopes on it. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, if you've ever been nauseous or motion sick or dealt with the anxiety that surrounds being nauseous or motion sick, you know you'll do whatever it takes to feel normal again. That's why you've got to check out Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband, clinically proven to quickly and effectively prevent or relieve nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, and chemotherapy. Relief Band has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and over 100,000 satisfied customers. Whether you need everyday nausea relief or an occasional cure, Relief Band's patented technology makes feeling sick a thing of the past. Forget the days of anti-nausea pills that leave you feeling drowsy. Relief Band is legitimately a band you wear on your wrist to give you relief from nausea. You can even change the intensity depending on how you happen to be feeling. Uh, if you want the band that actually works to relieve your nausea, check out Relief Band. I've worked out an exclusive offer just for my listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code Walsh, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So go to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com, use promo code Walsh for 20% off plus free shipping. From the Daily Wire, we'll uh, mention this right off the top. Uh, it says, new Twitter CEO Elon Musk informed employees Thursday evening to not come into the office tomorrow as the company was laying off a substantial portion of its workforce. The news comes after Bloomberg reported earlier this week that Musk was cutting 3,700 of the company's 7,500 employees on Friday. So it's cutting about half of them. Musk is also reportedly canceling a work-from-anywhere from policy and is going to force employees to come into the office to work. What a tyrant. They got to come into that, into, into the office with the foosball and, and the yoga and, and meditation and all, all the rest of it. Um, an email from the company sent to all employees stated, in an effort to place Twitter on a healthy path, we will go through the difficult process of reducing our global workforce on Friday. We recognize that this will impact a number of individuals who have made valuable contributions to Twitter, but this action is unfortunately necessary to ensure the company's success moving forward. Given the nature of our distributed workforce and our desire to inform impacted individuals as quickly as possible, communications for this process will take place via email, the message said. So they're, they're sending out, they're going to find out um, whether they still have jobs. Or in fact, they're finding out right now, I suppose, whether they still have jobs by, via email. 
Uh, the emails, the email said that everyone will receive an email about the future, their future at the company, regardless of whether they're being laid off or not. Uh, the email said to help ensure the safety of each employee, as well as the Twitter systems and customer data, our offices will be temporarily closed and all badge access will be suspended. If you're in an office or on your way to an office, please return home. We acknowledge this is an incredibly challenging experience to go through, whether you're not, whether or not you're impacted. Thank you for continuing to adhere to Twitter, Twitter policies, uh, so on and so forth. So they said everyone's going to find out via email. And uh, if if you're fired, then your email is going to come to your personal email address. And if you're not, then the email will go to your company email address. And that's how they're all going to find out. It is a, it's a tough thing. Um, and I'm, I'm worried that Twitter won't be able to function without you know, 6,000 people in the building meditating and doing yoga and playing foosball. I'm concerned about the impact that that will have. But it, it is tough. I mean, mass layoffs, uh, not something you want to see usually. But Twitter brought this on itself. This is its own doing. And it has to happen now. You know, Elon Musk today, he tweeted this morning. He said, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation, and we did everything we could to appease the activists, extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. Well, see, this is exactly the problem, though. So Elon Musk says, well, we did everything we could to try to appease the activists, and it didn't matter. We still lost, lost revenue. This, this, this is why Twitter's in the spot that it's in to begin with. This is why they have to make all these cuts. It's because they were appeasing activists. Not just appeasing them, but they have a lot of left-wing activists on staff who are much more concerned about left-wing activism than they are about doing their jobs, uh, and certainly uh, much more concerned about that than they are about you know providing a, a forum for free speech and, and all of that. And that's why it concerns me. You know, like like I said yesterday, you got to give Elon Musk time. I mean, I, I imagine it's not an easy thing to take over a multi-billion-dollar company and try to right the ship. It's not something I've ever done or I think I'd be able to do. So you got to give them some time. But you hear things like, well, we tried to appease the activists. And it didn't well, that, that's why you don't appease them. Right, that's exactly, that's exactly correct. You try to appease the, the activists and it didn't matter. That's why you don't appease them. That's why you ignore them. There's, there's no good that can come of appeasing the activists. And why is that? Because they can't be appeased. Well, two reasons. Number one, their goals are the opposite of your goals. And so to appease them means that you're compromising on your own goals for what is now your company. But then you also can't appease them. Anything less than anything uh, less than full capitulation on your part will not appease them. And even if they get full capitulation, they're still not appeased. You could crawl on the ground groveling and sobbing and begging for their approval and their forgiveness, and that will still not appease them. If all you do is try to compromise and meet them in the middle, which is kind of what Elon Musk is, seems like right now is trying to do by having these t- uh, Twitter content moderation boards and bringing people in, activists in and having conversations, he's sort of trying to, he's trying to find a middle ground and meet them in the middle and talk to them like they're normal, reasonable people. But they're not. That's the problem. That's why there's no point in even talking to them. Hopefully he comes to realize that. Let's get into some uh, election and politics news. We've uh, got kind of a grab bag here. So we'll start with this from the Daily Wire. It says, Tennessee election officials said Wednesday that more than 200 voters cast ballots that have been cast in the wrong races since early voting began in Nashville. 
Jeff Roberts, the administrator of the Davidson County Election Office, told the Associated Press that 190 voters cast ballots in the wrong congressional races, 16 cast votes in incorrect state Senate race, and six cast votes in a wrong state House race. The Associated Press notified Roberts' office on Tuesday that voters were receiving information contradicting which race they could vote in. The fix has been put in place, Roberts said, adding that the officials sent corrections to the Secretary of State's office on Wednesday and that early voters would receive the proper ballots until Election Day. Now, this is just a, uh, a small preview. This is a small microcosm of the problems that we're going to see all across the country. And it's why, if you're serious about election integrity, if you're serious about preserving our democracy, uh, you wouldn't have early voting or mail-in voting, none of that. With, with a few exceptions, active duty military personnel, you make an exception there. That might be like the only exception that I would make. Anything beyond that, you vote in person on election day, and that's it. In person on election day, and also the votes have to be counted on the same day. This is what nearly every other country with a democratic system is able to figure out how to do, and yet we can't, somehow we can't figure it out. So we give, we give multiple weeks or months to vote and then multiple days to count the votes. There's a whole lot that can go wrong, or maybe from the less perspective, go right during that process. And there's just no excuse for it. There's no reason. If democracy is really this, uh, this sacred thing that we must preserve, then not only would we do everything we can to ensure its integrity, which starts by you only vote on one day in person, but also we would have no problem requiring the people who want to take part in this sacred right to, to take time out of their day. It's, all, it's only one day. It's like one day every two years, right? It's like, can you, one day every two years, this is the day, and plan ahead, Okay, I know how difficult it can be to get some, you know, when you've got a job and you have kids, but you've got two years' notice. Plan ahead. Get there on, on, on election day. I just don't believe that there, that there are people who would, again, with a few exceptions, active duty military, but putting those exceptions aside, I don't believe that there are people who would really, really, really want to vote and, be, and participate in our democracy and yet, even with two years' notice, knowing the exact day when the vote's going to happen, cannot possibly figure out a way to carve out, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or how, whatever, however much time on that day. If it's important to you, you'll figure out how to do it. But I can't because I got this. Okay, well, then it's not that important to you, I guess. You know, if you got to use a day off of work to do it, then use the day off. And if you don't, you know, you don't want to use the day off, then that's fine, too. You don't have to. Not everybody has to vote. I actually, I'm, I, as you know, I'm not one of these people that says it's a, we, we have a, you have a responsibility to vote. I don't think you have a responsibility to vote. I think if you want to vote and, and you're informed and you know what you're doing and you're an active participant in society, you're a constructive participant in society and you're informed and all that and you really want to vote, then, then yes, you should. But if it's not that important to you, you're not really paying attention, you don't feel like taking the time off of work, you don't feel like getting the babysitter, whatever, then uh, that's for just don't. This is what we do, would do if we actually cared about protecting democracy, but we don't. Moving into the uh, cringe category, the Fetterman campaign uh, just put out an ad, and this is just like the NBC thing. This is, uh, this is actually real. 
This is not some kind of deep fake. They really did this. And here it is. Mr. Fetterman. Mr. Fetterman. Yeah? You need any help? I'm running for the U.S. Senate, kid. I need all the help I can get. You're running for Senate? Sure. Where is your suit and your flag pin and your hair? Oh, hey, kid. I just want you to know I'd vote for you. Hey, thanks, kid. You want a drink? Nah, no. Really, you can have it. Okay. Thanks. See you around. Hey, kid. Catch. Thanks, Mayor John. What's a jag-off? Um, I'll, I'll tell you when you're older. Okay, so that's obviously supposed to be a play on the, the Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola ad from the 70s or 80s, whenever that was. Uh, it's just like that ad, except that ad did not cause a potentially fatal case of cringe, like this one does. I think I'm brain damaged now after watching that. And the thing is, but yeah, I'm watching that, and this is this is circulating a lot on Twitter this morning, so I saw it. Um, and people are giving Fetterman a hard time. But actually, when I watch it, yeah, it's extremely cringy. But I was going to say that uh, that in a certain way, I'm I'm impressed by it because he, you know, he he's 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 stringing together sentences. He appears to be basically coherent, um, and so I'm actually impressed by that. But then as it was playing, I was informed that, in fact, this is an ad that's now been picked up and circulating. It's from 2016. So I can't, so I can't even give him credit for that, unfortunately. Uh, that, that was, that was, this was 2016. That was Fetterman at his peak. That was peak Fetterman, what you just saw there. And you know what the sad part is? Fetterman very well might still win, okay? That was peak Fetterman from six years ago. Now, Oz is only ahead in the polls by a point or two. And as you know, the polls are fake. No one cares about the polls. But still, I'm not actually confident that Oz wins um, for a couple of reasons. One is the polls, but also, you know, early voting. I think even before the debate happened, there had been, I don't know, half a million votes cast already in the race. So this is, this is and this is one of the reasons why uh, they decided to wait to do the debate. They knew they had to do the one debate. They couldn't dodge it. And they knew it was going to be a disaster. And so they waited until hundreds of thousands of votes were already, were already cast. And then they did, and then they did the, uh, the debate. Um, but then also, you know, Oz is just not an impressive candidate. This is, this is one of the things that's so frustrating about the Pennsylvania race is that you're running against a vegetable, a brain-dead guy. And almost any Republican, you could have put almost anyone against him. So why not nominate a real conservative. If you're worried about, I don't know if a real conservative can win in Pennsylvania, which I don't think is true. But certainly they, they could against this guy. And instead, the Republican voters in Pennsylvania selected the one Republican who might actually still lose. And you can blame, you know, you can blame the voter, the Republican voters in, in, in Pennsylvania if that happens. You can also blame the, the people on the right who endorsed Oz 
in the primaries to include President Trump. All right, while we're on the subject of cringe, uh, Kamala Harris was on the campaign trail as well, raving about Venn diagrams again. Watch. And what we are also seeing is that if you look at, you know, I like Venn diagrams, okay? So if you look, <laughs> I do. And um, if you look at the intersection on some of these issues, it's pretty profound and very clear. She actually really does like uh, Venn diagrams. This is a thing with her. She has this obsession with Venn diagrams. It's, the, it's one of the strangest political quirks I've ever seen. So here's a, I don't know who put this together, but someone, someone took the time. She's been talking about Venn diagrams for years, obsessing over them. Uh, so just watch. Remember Venn diagrams, those three circles, right? And then let's just see where they overlap. You will not be surprised because I have constructed a Venn diagram on this. Remember those three circles, how they overlap? I love Venn diagrams. So I just do. Whenever you're dealing with conflict, pull out a Venn diagram, right? And so, you know, the three circles. And so I, so I, I asked my team, right? They're I'm fantastic. Out right now that he sees the Venn diagram of it all. He sees that there are those circles and mm -hmm. maybe people seem that they're a little different. They live in different parts of the country. They may be different age or different race. But that area in the middle, that overlap. And I asked my team to do a Venn diagram of where these attacks are happening. So voting rights, women's reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights. And of course, there was a huge intersection. You know, I asked my team to do a Venn diagram for me of where we are seeing attacks and who are the attacks against and the similarity. And when you look at a diagram of the, uh, just a Venn diagram in that regard, it, it tells a, a real tale. This is the most bizarre fetish I've ever heard of. What does it even mean that you love Venn diagrams? That's like saying you love a bar graph, you know? It doesn't depend on what the bar graph shows. I love a chart. Charts are great. Well, this chart is showing your approval ranking tanking, Madam Vice President. Oh, but it's a chart, though. Isn't it neat? Imagine being on Kamala Harris's staff. Every day she demands that you make a Venn diagram. She doesn't tell you, like, what she wants the Venn diagram to say. She just wants a Venn diagram. Hey, you, make my daily Venn diagram. Of what? What do you, what do you mean? What am, I, what am I putting in? Just, just, just give me a Venn diagram. It's very strange. Uh, one more political ad that I want to show you. This one has garnered outrage on the left, and it's running in Georgia. Isaac Hayes III, who I'm pretty sure is the son of Isaac Hayes the singer, posted it with this caption. He says, this is a real commercial running in Georgia. Racists co-opting racism. That's a new one. Make sure you get out and vote, Georgia. And here it is. When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. Co that is co-opting racism, we're, we're being told by the left. You're co-opting it. Uh, no, every single thing you heard in that ad is true. That is actually happening. And it's about time they started putting that in campaign ads. Republicans have been, uh, have been very hesitant to talk about, you know, they'll, they'll dance around it, but to actually name it 
anti, end anti-white bigotry. Yeah, put that on a poster. Like, yeah, that's, that's something to march. That's a, that's a banner you can march under. It's a real thing. It's actually happening. Systemic racism against white people. Um, and, and yeah, and there are a lot of white people in this country, a lot of white voters. And there's nothing wrong with letting them know that, hey, by the way, if you vote for a Democrat, uh, you are voting for bigotry and racism, systemic racism against yourself. Here are the policies they support against you systemically. But on the left, they're, they're terrified that Republicans will actually start naming this and galvanizing voters against it. They're terrified of that. They can't really tell you why you shouldn't. Like, what's, what's wrong? If there's, if there's anti-white racism, why are we not allowed to talk about it? It's, it's, racist, to even, it's racist to even talk about anti-white racism, which only proves, again, how much anti-white racism there is in this country. Um, all right, I've had this in the queue for a few days. This is uh, from the Daily Wire. It says, the crowd at a Luke Bryant concert erupted in cheers Friday night when the country music singer brought Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on stage to promote the state's recovery efforts from Hurricane Ian. Bryant's concert in Jacksonville, Florida, which was part of his Raised Up Right tour, had been postponed several times in recent weeks due to the hurricane. Bryant said, we're going to have some fun and we're going to raise some money tonight for the great state of Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to stage, Governor Ron DeSantis. And then DeSantis came out, and there were loud cheers, and uh, people were very excited. The governor said, all you voters, uh, Florida voters, if you want to keep the state of Florida free, we need you to vote on, on November 8th. And so it was just a short appearance, and, uh, and that was it. Obviously, uh, once again, the left is very upset that, you know, how dare this country singer bring a Republican governor on, on board. Luke Bryant put out a statement a few days later. And this is what a statement says. It's not exactly an apology, but the statement says, I typically don't respond to stuff when I'm getting run down on a social platform, but here's the deal. I understand Governor DeSantis is a very polarizing figure, but I grew up in a country where if a governor asks if they can come and raise awareness to help victims of a natural disaster, you help. I've generally stayed out of politics throughout my career. I knew people would chatter about this, but for me, the more important piece was if I'm going to come back there a few weeks after a uh, large portion of people have been affected by a natural disaster in a state where people have been good to me, this felt right. Raise awareness, have a little fun between the Georgia and Florida college fans before the game, and do what I love on stage. This is all I'm saying about this. I'll be outdoors with my boys. Enjoy your Sunday. Love y'all. Go dogs. So not exactly an apology, um, but the, the polarizing line is a form of capitulation explaining yourself. Now, I know I talk all the time about don't apologize. And so you know my speech about that. Um, but, but to even, you know, to even legitimize the criticisms by explaining yourself in this way or sort of um, granting, you know, granting the premise that, yeah, I know he's a, he's a very polarizing, a polarizing figure. I wouldn't even do that much. Like, that's a form of, of groveling. You're also explaining yourself to people who, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing you can say that's going to make it okay with them. That's the lesson Elon Musk needs to learn. You're trying to appease people who can't be appeased. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams has been brought out, you know, at, uh, at concerts in Georgia. And you think any of those 
They pop star to bring Stacey Abrams out. You think they're going to explain it? You think they're going to release a statement saying, I know she's a polarizing figure. No, the people critical of Stacey Abrams being brought on stage, they're just going to be ignored. And so that's the exact same thing you should do here. Just ignore them. Most of these people aren't country fans anyway. They're not Luke Bryan fans. So who cares what they say? All right. Um, well, I can't read any of this article to you because it's behind a paywall and uh, I'm not going to pay. But here's the tweet from The Economist with the link to the article. It says, in some circles, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has called into question not just the value of reading Russian masterworks, but also the morality. And the title of the article is, yes, the Russian literary canon is tainted by imperialism. That doesn't mean you should stop reading it. So I suppose we're supposed to congratulate The Economist for coming to the right conclusion here, that you don't need to stop reading Russian novels. Um, You don't need to hold Tolstoy accountable for Putin by refusing to read his work, especially because Tolstoy died like 40 years before Putin was ever born. But entertaining this objection at all is insane. Entertaining the idea that you would refrain from reading some of the greatest novels of all time because of imperialism, I mean, that's what's ridiculous. Russian literature is tainted by imperialism. Yeah, do you know which, which other great works of literature were uh, written by people who lived in an empire or who believed in what we call imperialism or who at least had views on the subject that don't line up with modern mainstream leftism? You know how many? Like, I don't know, 80% of all, of all the great books in history? Or maybe more, maybe 100%. Certainly, 100% of the great novels were written by people who, whether on the subject of imperialism or on other subjects, had views that the modern left would find objectionable. That is 100% of, of the great authors in history. That's 100% of the great people in history. Which is why you don't, you don't, um, you don't hold them up to that standard. It's absurd to do so. A lot of great authors, too, were, were, you know, troubled people. Dostoevsky was not, he would not have been a pleasant guy to be around. A lot of, a lot of interesting facts about his life. But if you're going to let that stop you from reading Crime and Punishment or from reading, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brothers K or one of his great books, then that's, you know, that's, you're, you're punishing yourself. And if people want to punish themselves by saying, oh, I can't, I can't read this literature because I don't approve of it. Well, if you want to punish yourself in that way, that's fine. You're going to be a less interesting person. Reading great works of literature makes you a more interesting, well-rounded, intelligent person. So you are making yourself less interesting and less intelligent. You can do that. I have no problem with that. That's your choice. Uh, the issue is when this makes its way into the school system. though. You're making this choice for kids, which, of course, is the next step. All right, let's get now to the comment section. While today's coffee often comes with hints of soy and social justice, Black Rifle Coffee delivers an entirely different experience. Bold, strong, and delicious Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee I choose to get me through the day. Black Rifle Coffee is veteran-founded and operated. Their mission is to help service members successfully transition 
from the military into entrepreneurship. They provide assistance to veterans who seek to launch businesses of their own with the goal of helping more companies like Black Rifle become a reality. Black Rifle is committed to hiring 10,000 veterans and they're well on their way. As for the coffee itself, Black Rifle is very selective about where they source their coffee beans and very disciplined when it comes to ensuring the freshness of every bag. So all you got to do is go to blackriflecoffee.com, use promo code Walsh for 10% off your first order, or when you sign up for a new Coffee Club subscription, the subscription gives you free shipping on all Coffee Club orders, early access to club deals and promotions, and special discounts from their partner brands. That's blackriflecoffee.com with promo code Walsh for 10% off your first order, or when you sign up to become a Coffee Club member, Black Rifle Coffee, supporting veterans and America's coffee. Johnny the Walrus says, I'd love to see Matt going through security alone at the airport and the TSA searches his bag and sees a stuffed bearded baby. Well, that's, uh, no, we check those bags. The, the bags with that kind of paraphernalia. I don't even know if that's legal on a plane or not, so we check those. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, I don't want to test the TSA policies on that. Jamie Jones says, Dwayne, my son now has 17 cavities and horrible nausea and vomiting because he wanted to eat all of his Halloween candy at once. As a good parent, I followed his lead. I'll be sending you the medical and dental bills as you are such a good dad and generous person. I'm sure you're more than happy to cover it. Well, remember what what, uh, Dwayne Wade said is that our job, what was the exact phrasing? Our job as a parent is to, it's to sit back and see where our kids want to go and just go there with them. So yeah, your kid wants to go into the Halloween bag and eat all of the candy all at once. And so your job is to, it's to accompany them on, on that journey. Be a supportive and affirming voice. Anthony said, Matt, thanks for covering the story about the priest and Carrie. You should hear what the media are saying about it over here. Half the time they're saying that they want separation of church and state, but now all the government reps are weighing in and saying he should apologize. So separation only when it suits them. Another similar comment from the Dublin Kitchen. Hi, Matt. I live in Dublin, Ireland. It wasn't just the bishop that threw that priest under the bus. Over the last few days, that priest has been on mainstream media shows, and they more or less tried to make him look stupid, at least or insane. Um, the, 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 the Irish media has moved so much to the left, it's hard to watch or even listen to it anymore. And this is all, remember what they always, what, they, what, what, what we were told by the left for so many years. They said, you know, your religious views, don't, don't, don't say them out in public. Keep that. That's where the church is for. But put, you know, go, go to church if you want to be religious. I don't want to see your crosses and all, the, all that kind of stuff here. Uh, just go to church. You know, church is, where, is what religion is for. And of course, in the United States, we have the First Amendment. And that, that was never an accurate reflection of what the First Amendment guarantees. You know, you are allowed to uh, express your religious views anywhere. That's what, that's what the First Amendment guarantees. But even so, what do we find out? That actually, no, they don't even want you to talk about this in church. Uh, do, do all this, talk all this Christian nonsense in church. Well, then, then you go to church, and uh, if, if a priest actually dares to express or teach Christian values, this is what happens to him. So it was all scam all along. Um, Brian says, hey, Matt, I really appreciated your commentary on men being called to fatherhood. I'm currently in my mid-30s and have been taking care of my handicapped father for the last four years of my life. It's been hard to find a balance, uh, a love life on top of that, and improve my career, but I'm a big part of my nieces and nephews' lives, and I'm close with my community. I've coached Little League and my Little League teams in my community and strive to be a positive member of the community. 
even if I'm never able to have kids of my own, I will always be called to some level of fatherhood. And I think that's what you're saying. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. Well, that is exactly what I'm saying. You know, most, most men are called to biological fatherhood, to, you know, to actually uh, uh, conceiving and, and raising kids, but not all men. And you know, the other thing is that there are men who are called to have to biological fatherhood, we'll call it, um, and fulfill the first part of the calling, which is conceiving the children, but then not the rest of it. Um, and then they just abandon their kids. And what that means is that uh, in a lot of communities, you've got a lot of, a lot of young kids, young men, who don't have the male role models, and that's where someone like yourself, you know, as a as a coach, as a uh, as a role model, mentor, you know, you can be you can you can be that male role model and that um, that uh, uh, example to those to those kids. So that is certainly you know that is not to say that you'll never get married and have kids of your own, but you know maybe this is your, this this will end up being ultimately your vocation, and it's a quite a noble vocation, and it's still a it is still a paternal vocation. Uh, let's see. Matthew Kelly says, Matt Walsh complaining about people wanting to see themselves in McDonald's toy while a literal plush toy with his face on it sits right behind him is hilarious. I know you think you might have a gotcha here with that, but the difference is I don't want to see myself that way. And I didn't, I don't get it. You think I have a choice in any of this? You think they ask me? No, they just, they just one day say, hey, we, got, we, we made you into a baby doll toy, and we're going to sell your likeness and profit off of it. They just tell me that. So no, I, I don't want to see myself that way, but it just, it just, it just is. It, it happens. And then when they tell me, and I object to it, and I say, I, I disagree with this in principle, and they say, well, we're doing it. And then I say, okay, fine, I just want to cut of the profits. And that is, that's principle. Okay, that's how I stand. That's the kind of man I am. As you all know, Flannel Friday is a special day for the Sweet Baby Gang. It's a reminder of episodes gone by, hundreds of hours of carefully honed commentary, all wrapped in a plaid package. My signature flannels, now only visible on Fridays or on the road where the wardrobe department can't reach me, are a sign of comfort and familiarity to all my sweet babies. You may even be wearing a flannel right now. But think about how much more flannel you could be wearing. Now stop thinking, because the Flannel Friday patch is still available in my swag shack. Add it to your favorite flannel, your skin, or wherever, whatever place uh, best demonstrates your level of commitment to the Sweet Baby Game. The last patch sold out fast, so don't wait. Go to dailywire.com shop to add to your patch collection and also flannel arsenal. Also, Christmas is usually December 25th, but this year it's coming early because not only is a red wave going to wash over this country and save it from the tyrannical left, there's also a ton of new Daily Wire Plus content for you to enjoy, starting with episode two of Jordan Peterson's new series on marriage. Uh, This episode is all about negotiating, or I should say learning the proper way to negotiate. Candace Owens also has a brand new episode of her new show, Taboo, featuring special guests and multi-platinum selling musician MIA. You'll hear about her rise to fame and being canceled for speaking out about vaccine mandates. Then there's Ben Shapiro's Sunday special releasing this Sunday. Ben sat down with uh, t- Tennessee Governor uh, Bill Lee to chat about school choice, uh, fighting through COVID policies, his experience on a woman's health clinic board, and much more. Last up, Daily Wire Plus is now streaming the documentary film 
My Dinner with Trump, which gives us a behind-the-curtain look at the former president and his closest advisors as they dine together at his private club at Bedminster. Regardless of how you may feel about the man, this is truly Donald Trump as the media would never show you. And certainly, nothing like this exists or has ever existed on the right. So, yes, it's a huge week here. And if you're not yet a member, there's never been a better time to join. Go to dailywire.com Walsh to become a member today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. The World Series is apparently happening this week, or already happened. There's no way to know for sure. All we know is that the racial bean counters are on the job, on the lookout. And the Associated Press has this report, quote, Looking around Memorial Stadium before Game 1 of the 1983 World Series, Philadelphia Phillies star Gary Matthews saw a lot of black talent. Joe Morgan, Eddie Murray, Gary Maddox, Ken Singleton, El Bumbry, Disco Dan Ford, and plenty more that night in Baltimore. There were quite a few of us, Matthews recalled. When fans watch the Houston Astros and Phillies lineup this week to begin the fall classic, it'll be a much different picture. To be sure, Houston's Jose Altuve and Philadelphia's Jean Segura, Jean Segura, I don't know. Yeah, probably Jean. Jean, uh, I just made him French. Jean Segura are among scores of Latin players uh, helping keep big league rosters diverse. But for the first time since 1950, shortly after Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball color barrier, their project to be, uh, their project to be no U.S. born, so this is no U.S. born black players in this World Series. Zero. Quote, that is eye-opening, said Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. Quote, it somewhat uh, is startling that two cities that have high African-American populations, that there wouldn't be a single black player. It lets us know there's obviously a lot of work to be done to create opportunities for black kids to pursue their dream at the highest level, he said. Robinson debuted in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers and played in the World Series that year. Since then, the 1950 matchup between the New York Yankees and Phillies has been the only World Series without a black player. Okay, so there are no black players. Scratch that. There are no U.S.-born black players. So you can mark this down as the first time the left-wing media has ever advocated for U.S.-born people. You will never hear them lament the absence of U.S.-born citizens in any context unless they found some strange way to fit it into their racial grievance narrative, as they have here. And, and if there is a racial grievance, however ridiculous and petty it may be, to be found in the sports world, you can guarantee that Stephen A. Smith will be following close behind. Indeed, the more ridiculous and petty, the better, as far as he's concerned. And so here's what he had to say. We are still black in this country. We don't trust this country in terms of meritocracy always. We know the bottom line is, is that just like women are underpaid compared to male counterparts, blacks are underpaid compared to white counterparts. And so when you look at it from that perspective, and of course, I have people to look at me. I'm not talking about me, even though I got news for you. I am underpaid compared to some people on television and what they get paid. But that's a subject for another day. I ain't apologizing for that to a damn soul. I am underpaid. Having said all of that, it ain't about me. <laughs> I just made it about me, but it's not about me. Let me talk about myself, but this isn't about me. Smith is underpaid, he says. He makes $12 million a year and is one of the highest paid broadcasters of the world. He has managed to pull in that salary despite the fact that it's physically impossible to listen to him for more than 45 seconds without developing a debilitating migraine. He, he has never made an insightful point in his entire career. Not one person on earth has ever said this phrase. You know, Stephen A. Smith made a really good point today. No one's ever said that. 
ever. That is a statement that has never been uttered by human lips. And yet he's made a million dollars a month. He makes more in a month than the average American will make in like 20 years. And he's underpaid and he's the victim of racism. Never mind that his most recent white co-host, Max Kellerman, made a fraction of his salary. You know, but these details are irrelevant for some reason. Yeah, we shouldn't let this, this stupidity distract us from the stupidity that was meant to be the subject of our daily cancellation, which is the claim that a lack of U.S.-born black players in the World Series is a symptom of racism. Notice how the game is played here. Like, every roster in the NFL is majority black, but there's still racism because there's not enough coaches who are black. The World Series has minority players. Major League Baseball in general has tons of minority players, but there's still racism because there aren't enough of them born in the United States. Houston's manager is also black. That doesn't count because he's not a player. So the NFL is racist because there are black players, but not enough black coaches. The World Series is racist because there are black coaches, but not enough black players. It's almost like everything is racist, literally no matter what. By the way, here's the Astros manager, Dusty Baker, who again is black, talking about this issue. Listen. That's uh, something that baseball, you know, should really be proud of, you know, because it's a... Uh, it looks bad and lets people know that, <clears throat> you know, uh, it didn't take uh, a year or even a decade to get to this point. Uh, but there is help on the way. Um, the, you can tell by the number of uh, African-American number one draft choices. Um, the uh, academies are, are producing uh, players. So... Uh, Hopefully, in the near future, we won't have to talk about this anymore or even be in this situation. In the future, maybe we won't have to talk about it anymore. We don't have to talk about it now. He says it looks bad. So, so which of his white players should be replaced by a black player? Does he have players on his team who don't deserve to be there? Whose fault is that, if so? Is this what systemic racism looks like? I mean, what kind of systemically racist system in the NFL would welcome hundreds of black players and pay them millions of dollars? What kind of systemically racist system in the MLB would welcome tons of foreign-born, non-white players and pay them millions of dollars? Is this how systemic racism works now? Is there actually evidence of U.S.-born blacks being denied from baseball rosters because of the color of their skin and and, and their origin of birth? Isn't it simply true that black kids in America are less likely to end up playing baseball because they're much more likely to end up playing basketball or football? Isn't that a result of choice, not racism? And if lack of opportunity does factor in, isn't it then merely you know, a function of the fact that black people are more likely than whites to live in urban environments where baseball fields are more scarce because they take up more space and basketball hoops are more common? What does it even mean to say that more black people should be playing baseball? Don't the black people themselves have a say in this? Which of the non-baseball playing black Americans should be playing baseball right now? Should we, like, assign it to them? Should we force them into it in order to balance the racial baseball scale? Anytime somebody laments a lack of X group in Y profession, what they're really saying is that a certain portion of the members in that group who are not in that profession should be in it. But what does that mean? I mean, how can you make a statement like that? If you start guiding more black kids into baseball, you're also guiding them away from whatever else they might do. One other point, we're told that we need to increase black representation in basically every profession, from sports to medicine to engineering and so on. 
But black people are a minority in this country. You really can't dramatically increase the representation in every possible profession. There just aren't enough people to go around. Unless, of course, you also increase the number of black people born in the U.S., but the left doesn't want to do that because they're too busy killing millions of black people in the womb. But these points are all academic. I mean, the race hustlers don't care about any of it. They'll find racism under every rock and in every nook and cranny. They'll find it one way or another. Because the victim narrative must stay alive no matter what. And that is why Stephen A. Smith and the Associated Press, both repeat customers, repeat offenders, I should say, are today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to our members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Godspeed.